Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 31 in our series on American history. In podcast number 30, we looked at the rise of egalitarianism with the rise of Jacksonian Democrats. We looked at their characteristic, and most importantly, I stressed the fact that the ability to vote in the United States of America was broadening with the requirement to own land, no longer a requirement. Race and gender, of course, were still issues. However, the voter base was broadening, and as a result, presidential candidates had to think outside of the box in order to reach more and more voters. With the rise of Andrew Jackson, his reputation in his performance during the War of 1812 preceded him. As a result, we looked at that election, the rise of the or the development of the presidency of Andrew Jackson, by looking at two central policies within his administration, the Indian removal policy and the nullification crisis. That then brought us to the end of the podcast where we looked at the presidency of Martin Van Buren in the sense that we're in trouble from the start because he was following truly what would be called a very popular president. So today in this 31st podcast, we're going to look also at the development of a new political party, examine a little bit closer the administration of Martin Van Buren, and then get to our first constitutional crisis within United States history. In the sense of the development of a new political party, it would be a group, two groups, that would eventually break off from the Democratic Party. Even though Andrew Jackson was extremely popular, common sense and our own experience dictates that oftentimes the the more one person becomes popular, it stands to reason that there will be a group, if not more than one group, who will also be alienated by the new popular figure. In other words, popularity can sometimes breed divisiveness. In this case, it was bankers alienated with the Jackson administration because of his defiance of the National Bank. In the second group, it was Southern states' right activists who were also alienated that Jackson wasn't taking a stronger line in his view of slavery. So those two sects pulled from the Democratic Party to form the Whig Party. The problem now, however, is that the established Democratic Party, as well as the Whigs, would have to work with one another and consider the views of the polar opposites. This is how, in 1836, former Vice President for Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, this is how he ekes by in succeeding Andrew Jackson as the now eighth president of the United States. Again, as I mentioned earlier, there was trouble from the start 
because Martin Van Buren was certainly no Andrew Jackson. He was his own man, not to take away from that, but again, the popularity, the appeal of Andrew Jackson didn't go away quickly. And Martin Van Buren had to deal with the legacy of Andrew Jackson as he attempted to try to stand on his own two feet. What's more is that Martin Van Buren took the oath of office on March 4th of 1837 with the effects of the Panic of 1837 already beginning to set in. And Martin Van Buren would not be the first, but he certainly would not be the last president of the United States who in many cases would be blamed for a faltering economy. He was able within his four years to get two Supreme Court appointments in there. He also was very successful in keeping America out of a conflict with Canada over the boundaries between Maine and Canada itself. However, as the election of 1840 loomed, it appeared as though the Whigs were gaining traction at the expense of the popularity of the Democratic Party. As a result, another war hero, this time William Henry Harrison, the first Whig candidate, would win and become our ninth president of the United States. Here, however, though, we also, for the first time, we recognize that Americans were beginning to look closely at the age and health of presidential candidates. There was some concerns because of the age of William Henry Harrison. However, Harrison won the election nonetheless. He was the, arguably the first presidential candidate to turn the campaign truly into a real spectacle. He appealed to almost all sects of American voters. As a result of his popularity, he attempted to give his inaugural address on March 4th, 1841. However, there was a light rain, dropping temperatures, turning that rain into snow, but Harrison would not be deterred. And as a result, he took off his outer coat and his overcoat and began to give his inaugural address to the Americans waiting in front of him as he was after he was sworn in. To date, he gave the longest, longest inaugural address in human history, literally as president of the United States. And it's part of the reason why let's hope that record isn't broken for more reason than one. The problem is, is the following days, he complained of a nonstop cold leading to a sore throat. He seemed to bounce back a little towards the middle of March. And then it segued once again with the return of the cold, sore throat, eventually the equivalent of swollen lungs, to the point that he slipped from this life on April 4th, which is why he would be the first president who's even his wife, the first lady of the United States, never even had an opportunity to move into the White House. As she was just about to leave their hometown back in Ohio, she received word that William Henry Harrison, her husband, the ninth president of the United States, had died. However, with his death, brought America's first constitutional crisis. On the surface, it didn't seem as though it would be any big deal. Clearly, the founding fathers had considered this, that if a sitting president of the United States dies, his successor, in this case, Vice President John Tyler, would succeed him. But that's all they wrote in the Constitution. The question was, 
John Tyler had to take the oath of office, otherwise the Oval Office wasn't occupied. So was he rightfully the 10th president of the United States? He can't be the ninth. The ninth died. So while there was little debate as to whether he would be the 10th president or not, he certainly was, his lack of own popularity, not only personally but within his own party, that dislike turned to outright hatred towards him, as many people just simply wanted to refer to him as his accidency, Mr. Vice President. Very few wanted to refer to him as Mr. President. Tyler got to the point that if anybody in front of him addressed him as other than Mr. President, they were dismissed. Any correspondence that came in the mail or telegram would be thrown out, unread, if it was addressed to anybody else than President John Tyler. On the surface, it may seem as though John Tyler was being petty. Part of the reason why initially after he left office, not to give away that end of the story, but of course he won't and be able to win the uh, re-election in 1840, the election of 1844. However, while he was president, as the 10th president, he was smart enough to know that to our international counterparts, there could and should not be a view that the Oval Office wasn't occupied. In other words, that America's armed forces didn't have a standing, very much alive commander-in-chief. In retrospect, Tyler did the right thing. He sent a message to the world that there was a seamless trans transition, that despite the unexpected death of an American president, as the Founding Fathers outlined in the Constitution, there would be a smooth successor, this, of course, being John Tyler. He let the world know that, and again, in retrospect, did the right thing. There was also another factor to John Tyler's personality, as well as his personal life, which shouldn't have been a factor in why so many people were aggravated with, aggravated with him, but it was just, it was what it was. And that's the fact that he dated, arguably, the most beautiful woman in all of Washington, D.C., and eventually married Julia Gardner. Julia is argued to be the most attractive first lady the United States has ever had. Generally, when we rank our presidents in terms of a variety of factors, many, of course, academic as they should be and professional, there are these lighthearted polls that are done as to, for example, who is America's best looking or most presidential president we've ever had. Ironically enough, for the presidency, it becomes that honor generally goes to one of the lowest ranked presidents in terms of his performance, that being Warren Harding from Ohio. In terms of the best looking first lady, Julia Gardner usually gets that honor. Julia Gardner wanted to be dated by any and all political bachelors within Washington, Washington D.C., and even some married men as well who wished to keep that secret. So the fact that Julia was grabbing the arm of a sitting president, much less an unpopular one, only added to John Tyler's unpopularity. However, to truly add continued insult to injury, John Tyler, despite not winning his attempted bid for re-election, he would die during the American Civil War. Yes, he did resonate and support the South. However, it was the only time in American history, and hopefully the last time, that Washington, D.C. refused to honor a former president. 
even going so far as to deny any part in a presidential funeral, we would not even lower our flags to half staff. That is the reason why John Tyler's presidency was stricken from the beginning. However, the only reason why some cases his popularity has bubbled up is again, in retrospect, digging in his heels by insisting to be referred to as Mr. President, digging in his heels to be sure that everybody around the world knew the Oval Office was indeed occupied. In the end, at the end of the day, he did the right thing. That's what would bring us, there, therefore, to the election of 1844 with one of our first dark horse candidates, James Knox Polk. It would be a return of the Democrats to the presidency when he would win and become our 11th president of the United States. There is a little known fact, though, about James Polk. He was not necessarily our shortest president. He was five foot eight inches, the same as a future president. In fact, his successor, Zachary Taylor, as well as down the line uh, successor, Ulysses S. Grant. At five foot eight inches, again, he wasn't the shortest. That title still belongs to this day to James Madison, clocking in at five feet four inches. And of course, I'm assuming you know, but just in case for those that need a reminder, our tallest president to date also comes from the 1800s, of course, that being Abraham Lincoln at 6'3". However, Polk was known to walk into various meetings, celebrations, state dinners, and by and large not be recognized even by some domestic leaders as well as especially international leaders. Remember, nobody's jumping on their phones. Nobody's going on to Google to see what the new president of the United States looks like. Not even close. It's And if there's any rudimentary stencil drawings or whatever, it leaves a large area of open interpretation as to exactly what did this president look like. President Polk, though, however, had a decent sense of humor. And it was not unknown that when President Polk would walk in unannounced to a, you know, to a standing meeting or a dinner that is going in progress, that people would actually not turn, that would people would turn to him and ask him because of how nicely he was always dressed, ask him for an additional drink, ask him to bring something else from the kitchen. People literally sometimes mistaken him for a White House servant. Again, he laughed it off, known through many witnesses to actually honor what people asked of him. Somebody wanted an additional glass of wine. He was known to go to the kitchen and get it. However, it drove his wife nuts to the point of actually angering her. As a result, Sarah Polk insisted that when her president walked into a meeting or walked into any kind of a, a gathering of people, whether it be political or just constituents or what have you, that everybody would know that the President of the United States was walking in and, as would dictate, would also stand upon his arrival. However, rather than have somebody appointed, that could sound a little pretentious to actually have somebody announce that the President of the United States is, has arrived. She wanted a little bit of a softer touch to that. So simply what she did is, he is uh, she saves the day by having, arguably, one of the most famous political songs in American history, 
Hail to the Chief. That, of course, is the song that Fred, that in some people it's you can hear the drum roll. To some people, it sounds a little off key. However, Hail to the Chief, ironically enough, a European drinking song. But the melody was just enough when played by the Marine Band to get everybody's attention, to have them stand up as the president of the United States walks in. Something that Sarah Polk had started in the 1840s, as we know, still goes on to this day. Most former presidents, however, upon leaving office, especially after two terms, will kiddingly say to close advisors, family, and friends that they want a long period of time when they're not hearing that melody of Hal to the Chief for at least a period of weeks or months. On the other hand, some presidents, they simply can't get enough of it, will still continue to play it long after they leave office. So that brings us then, as they say, to the election of 1844 with Andrew, excuse me, James Knox Polk coming in, taking the oath of office on March 4th, 1845. And he is going to take the oath of office with the presidential mandate, as he interprets it, of what becomes known as manifest destiny. President Polk comes into the Oval Office with the sole intention of seeing that what he can do to build on the legacy started by our third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, by expanding the southwest corner of the United States so that America can truly span from sea to shining sea. In the north, in the modern-day Dakota and Montana regions, that wasn't much of a problem. In fact, we had already obtained that. To the south, however, our neighbor Mexico, whom we were on very good terms with, the issue there wasn't the fact of what Mexico was debating about where they were at in terms of their country borderline on the river separating the United States and Mexico to this day. Rather, Mexico was occupying all of modern-day California, New Mexico, Arizona, and southern parts of Colorado and Utah. Something was going to have to happen if President Polk, in his one term, was going to get be able to get America to shine from sea to shining sea. So as a result, he looked for the inroads to negotiate with the country of Mexico to get our border to the current southern point where it is right now. Clearly, again, we have a partial water barrier uh, border as well as, of course, on land, but that wasn't factoring in as a future problem for President Polk. Rather, he wanted to see that within his 48 months in office, that he was going to be able to leave a legacy of finishing the expansion of the United States of America. You might have at one point now kind of raised your eyebrows saying, why do I constantly refer to one term? Well, we know, of course, because we're looking back in history, who's a one term, who's a two term, who dies in office and it, it, resigns from offices eventually we'll get to with Richard Nixon. But with James Polk, it was different. He was our first presidential candidate to arguably campaign to be a one-term president. 
he did not believe that it served America well to serve more than one term. He received some criticism for this because some wondered, was he actually thinking he was even better than George Washington, that he shouldn't, that Washington maybe shouldn't have served two terms. But Polk didn't criticize the presidents before him, which of course all but two served two terms. Of course, also with the exception of Harrison who died in office, he had no problem with those that served. He himself just felt as though he would be and should be a one-term president. He felt that he could be truer to himself and the American people if he wasn't worrying about the way his actions in his one term would be viewed if his mind was constantly on re-election. From there, Polk set out to work feverishly to expand America all the way to the southern point of modern-day Southern California. How ironic, though, that James Polk said he would be a one-term president because had he been reelected, he wouldn't have served out that second term. 1841, as we just covered with the election of, or the appointment of William Henry Harrison, 1841 is one of two years in American history where we have three sitting presidents in one 12-month calendar year. As 1841 opens, Martin Van Buren is president, number eight. On election day, William Henry Harrison, number nine, is president for roughly 30 days. He dies in office, number 10 comes in, of course, with John Tyler. The next time that that's going to happen, ironically enough, will be exactly 40 years from now, in 18. 81. However, with James Polk, he also wouldn't have again served that second term, would have died in office if his appetite, his diet didn't change. Not that he was a poor eater, but he died, ironically enough, of somewhat uncertain causes, as his successor will, Zachary Taylor, the hero of the Mexican-American War. As a result of this, this is the only decade in American history where three presidents died within a 10-year period, all in the 1840s, technically stretching it to 50 with Zachary Taylor. Looking back, while the three deaths were never considered to be at anything but three unfortunate incidents, Harrison dying in office, Polk dying after he left office, and then Taylor dying in office, there is some speculation that the two, Polk and Taylor, may have been poisoned, although it can't be confirmed for William Henry Harrison. The reason being is that I may have mentioned before, in fact, I know I mentioned in, in podcasts way back in our series on American history, that as you recall, Washington, D.C. is the lowest land between Virginia and Maryland. The Potomac region is essentially like a valley. As American settlers were beginning to establish who was living where long before Washington, D.C. was carved out, in the Maryland region, there was a well-known established human waste dump and garbage dump, and that had been used for decades. While it was still several miles from Washington, D.C. proper, it was uphill from Washington, D.C., 
There is some speculation, still has yet to be proven, and may never may never be able to be proven, that that garbage dump over the decades might have poisoned the water table where the wells in Washington, D.C. were drying their quote-unquote fresh tap water from. Again, we don't know this because, as I say, when James Garfield, our next president after Zachary Taylor to die in office, or excuse me, of course, Abraham Lincoln, both of them are assassinations. So there's no other, again, presidents that will die sitting in office or shortly after they left office due to gastrointestinal issues. But that brings us, therefore, to the end of this podcast. When we return there, therefore, when we begin the 32nd podcast, we're going to look at the Polk administration. We're going to see just how he's able to obtain the land north of the Rio Grande that will become our modern-day states of California, New Mexico, and Arizona. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsella.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have, or especially book recommendations. If you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day. 